Hi everyone, it's Anthony here. Just a quick note before we get started. It has been brought to our attention that in the previous episode, there was a factual error that due to the nature of our recording schedule is repeated in this episode. Last episode, we stated that Star Wars was released between seasons 14 and 15. And while this is true of the US release, Star Wars would not be seen in the UK until December the 27th, 1977, between the broadcast of The Sunmakers and Underworld. As such, nobody would have been making any comparisons on effects or model work this early in the season. We normally try to keep things as factually accurate as possible on the show, but even we don't necessarily catch everything. Anyway, enjoy our episode about Randy Space Virus Prawns. Watchers in the fourth dimension. You've never been in here before. Sometimes, light brings astonishing to me. The age of is over, Doctor. Hello, and welcome back to Watches in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And reject yourself. This episode, we're fighting off giant shrimp with the help of a robot dog as we discuss the invisible enemy. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick look at the mail, which is in the hands of Julie this episode. The mail is mostly going to be around talons of Wang Chiang this time, so let's get started. Our friend J.M. Casey says, Jago is definitely an over-the-top character, and while he doesn't irk me here, it gets excessive in some of the audios for sure. One day, I'll get to those audios. I think that's part of why people love him, but I understand Julie's point of view that it's a bit much with all the alliterations and wordplay he probably only has a vague idea about. We're supposed (laughs) to laugh at him and love him simultaneously, I think, and the bluster and pompous grandiosity is something he wears as a kind of shield. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I can only imagine that those audios are like 65% just slang. (laughs) They're probably just like reading directly from a slang dictionary, just going on and on, just doing voiceover for that. All right. R.L. Gray says, fie on Mr. Williams for not knowing the full Cockney rhyming slang for feet as plates of meat. Clearly, you spent far too much time with the gentry. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I'm not a Cockney. (laughs) I'm from southwest London with a dash of Welsh and I never really spent much time in the East End so I'm going to defend myself on that one and yet I knew what it was and I'm not British at all well you didn't say it when we recorded it yeah I did I thought we all agreed that Anthony's upbringing was like that of the kids (laughs) on the box of delights (laughs) that one yes all right moving on on the note of dialogue throwing in bits of sometimes arcane slang like oopsiotics no, oopazootics. <laughs> this word will get me every single time. And historical references, like the doctor saying he hoped to catch Little Tish, a music hall performer of the era, is a Robert Holmes specialty that I've always thought served the show well. More examples coming up next in Horror of Fang Rock, set not too long after this story. While I agree to some extent, if I have to look up too much of it, then it becomes cumbersome to watch these episodes. Uh, that's fair. Yep, I get that. Our friend Nick Rutherford says, I saw this on the original transmission and it remains my all-time favorite. 10 out of 10 plates of meat feet from me. Hope the translation there helps Riley. <laughs> yes, I was surprised you didn't mention Christopher Benjamin Jago and John Bennett Chang had both been in the show before as respectively Sir Keith Gold in Inferno and General Finch in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Uh. Anthony, our fearless leader, didn't bring that up. I know, and it's Inferno too. Your <laughs> to be fair, that episode was running really long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was true. It's fair. We can't go for an hour and a half on all of these, everyone. Yeah. Well, we could, but you probably don't want to listen to us for that long. <laughs> Tony Monticello has a bit to say, so I'll try to get through this quickly. Talons is a hard one to rank because what it does well, it does exceptionally well, but its problematic elements are also exceptionally problematic. Very efficient way of saying that. We kind of got a little bit long-winded on that before. Yes, we did. (laughs) In terms of atmosphere, it is second to none. Jago and Lightfoot are a delight. Mr. Sin belongs in the Doctor Who Baddie Hall of Fame. The Doctor and Leela are in top form. And there is a lot that deserves the high praise the story receives. Agreed. 
but there are also elements that equally deserve calling out. As you mentioned, much of the background racism could be excused by its 19th century setting, but were there really no Asian actors in 1970s England to play Chang with authenticity? Yes. Did his dialogue have to be so stereotypical? Seriously, that's a real problem. Yes, yes it is. The doctor going along with such regressive attitudes was equally problematic. Yes, yes it was. And then yes, there's the Benny Hill level cheesecake factor of Grill's hey. ridiculous sex distillery. <laughs> <laughs> I can buy the Jamie defense insofar as Leela's regular leathers, which do fit her character, but this stuck out like a sore thumb. Thank you, Tony. Overall, I think the good outweighs the bad. This was such a favorite when I was younger. Nostalgia also helps tip the balance towards the positive. But what used to be a solid 9.5, at least I'll now knock it down to 7 Peking homoculus out of 10. All right. Oh, was a lot. Thank you, Tony. (laughs) And our good, good friend, Adam Wright, says, I'm just going to say this ranks in my personal top 10. Leela shines in her first taste of Earth. Something about the Victorian era is just so fascinating. I do love that era. I love how Jago and Lightfoot play off one another and have continued in a new big finish. Not just a new, but many. I can easily get past the racist element because I'm a southern gay black man. (laughs) All right. (laughs) If we tried to hide all past opinions in film and television, we would have nothing to watch. I can see some of that. I love the -the over-the-top campiness of Magnus Greel. It is very over the top. Yeah. I could see a whole tale about Mr. Sin causing havoc. Would watch. <laughs> the terrifying. Watch. Yes. Shout out Deep Roy, Mr. Sin, and Vincent Wong. Yeah. We get our feet in the door where we can. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yes. Seven out of 10 lumps of sugar for Leela's tea because she can have it if she wants it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. All right. Nathan Laws says, to me, this is pretty much hands down the best fourth Doctor story. It's so cleverly written and brilliantly performed. Only Frontier in Space and Remembrance of the Daleks beat it out for my favorite Who of all time. Wow. Okay. I am going to be fascinated how you guys assess the seasons from here as stability goes out the window with a new script editor every season and even another producer change while Tom remains as the Doctor. And Julie, before you move on, Nathan did post a much, much longer commentary on our Facebook posting on our Talons episode. And for the sake of brevity, I picked an edited highlight from it. But dear listener, go check out what Nathan said if you're on Facebook. He's normally got some pretty interesting opinions. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Bill Stevens says, Happy New Year from Plymouth, United Kingdom. Love the podcast. I love getting people who listen to us from England. I feel like they might have some things to say. (laughs) (laughs) Jago was a parody of Leonard Sox, Barusa in Ark of Infinity, who fronted the good old days where modern audiences would dress up and watch a music hall show, Vaudeville, and the debate about John Bennett can't be ignored and the way you handle it is spot on. Thank you, Bill. Then we have Kieran James Evans. When 10 or 11-year-old me got the DVD back soon after release, I watch Talons quite often. But I don't watch it much these days. Defenders of Talon claim it is a parody of times when it is set, but for me, this falls into the category where you just end up doing the thing you are supposedly parodying. Yeah, okay. The fact that the Doctor and Leela join in on the era's casual racism leaves the more bitter aftertaste. That right there. That's where I agree. As for it being a recent thing to be frowned upon, stations in Ontario and LA didn't show it in the 80s, and the chaps over at Flight Through Eternity remember it often missed on reruns in Australia, also in the 80s. Okay. The actual story. To be frank, even younger me felt a bit of padding in parts four and five. Makes sense. It is a six-parter. It's a great production, and yes, you can tell it was quite expensive. Shame the BBC took the overspend out of the next season's budget question mark out of 10 (laughs) (laughs) i love kieran's shout out to the guys at flight through entirety one of them brendan is an old old friend of mine and they're rather good so if you have time to check out another doctor who podcast that's done the same thing as we're doing but is actually way further ahead they're actually very good shout out to them we're almost through guys just a few more mark dunstan says a great story very good despite the racist aspect 
But that was then, and things are different for certain now. I do not think it should be banished, despite this. Agreed, not banished, but we can still talk about the problems. As they say, we are where we are. This story has great dialogue and great characters. With the giant rat, they should have made it look damp and dirty if it's been in the sewer. That's one thing they could have done, (laughs) yes. The New Avengers had a giant rat in one of their stories the same week, I remember. It was a white one, but done much better. A live rat, but in a model sewer. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's fair. John Hart says, I always like the story with its Victorian atmosphere, despite its problematic casting, dubious giant rodents, and Leela's accidental entry into a wet t-shirt competition. <laughs> Nine out of ten marches on Reykjavik. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> nice. As a side note, Tom Baker would later play Sherlock Holmes in a BBC adaptation of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Apparently, Baker was not happy with his own performance, stating, I could not lift the character into that special world that makes Holmes so funny and fascinating. Or maybe Tom was annoyed that his suggestion that Dr. Watson be played by a cabbage was ignored by the producers. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very nice. Love that bit right there. And last but not least, Beardo Beatnik says, this story is just all about the power trio of Leela, Jago, and Lightfoot. The Doctor seems almost an afterthought in a Doctor Who story. Yes, yes, it has its problems. But please, can we get a Jago and Lightfoot spinoff for a few seasons? Well, <laughs> Big Finish did do that, so maybe go check them out. 14 seasons. He gives it 8 out of 10 giant mutant rats. And that, my friends, is the mail. Thank you, Julie. And thank you to everyone who wrote to us. As a reminder, we really do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments and questions. And as you've just heard, we try to read out as many as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. As always, you can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and for now, X at at Watches4D, or you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. On to the invisible enemy. And as usual, we will start behind the scenes. Upon his ascension to the role of producer for Doctor Who, Graham Williams immediately found himself with a directive from head of serials Bill Slater to scale back the levels of violence and horror in the show. Slater wanted Williams to take the show in a more family-oriented direction. With this, Williams and the fourth Doctor himself, Tom Baker, agreed that humour should feature much more than it did under Williams' predecessor, Philip Hinchcliffe. Williams was also faced with the practicalities of making Doctor Who. He disliked the random nature of the adventures, and he wanted to add some structure by having the new season revolve around a recurring storyline. At first, he mooted a revival of Unit, but Slater quickly vetoed that idea. Williams instead developed the notion of the Doctor being sent on a quest through time and space to find the six components of an all-powerful key to time. However, script editor Robert Holmes had already begun lining up scripts for the new season, not all of which could accommodate the proposed story arc. Williams thus decided to defer his plans to season 16. More to come on that. Among the serials that Holmes had lined up was an idea from the Bristol Boys, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. They had, of course, written multiple previous stories, including The Claws of Axos, The Mutants, The Three Doctors, The Sontaran Experiment, and The Hand of Fear. Our veteran writing duo started from a newspaper article about viral mutations, which inspired them with the idea of an intelligent, adaptive virus. An additional article in Scientific American about diseases impacting the mind and imagination further inspired them, while they also drew upon the 1966 feature film Fantastic Voyage, in which a team of specialists is reduced to microscopic size and injected into the bloodstream of a dying scientist. The Bristol Boys received their commission for what was initially titled Invisible Invader in January 1977. The Bristol Boys originally hoped that part three could be made on location, with the Doctor's mind to be represented by college cloisters or a stately garden. They also wanted the nucleus's emergence into the macroscopic world to trigger the transformation of the infected into similar creatures. At one point in writing, they intended that the Doctor would resolve the situation by igniting Titan's atmosphere in order to destroy the nucleus and its breeding tank. When they previously wrote The Hand of Fear, Baker and Martin had found the use of a catchphrase, Eldrad must live, to be most effective. And so they developed something similar for Invisible Invader with contact has been made. (laughs) 
One particularly striking element of the script was the introduction of a talking robot dog, which would be introduced to provide information to the viewer while the doctor was unconscious with the clone doctor inside his body. Dave Martin was a dog lover who had recently suffered the loss of two dogs to car accidents. The robot dog was inspired by the notion that had his dogs been, quote, built like a tank, unquote, they would have survived the accidents. After considering other options, the dog was christened as K-9, and the rest, ladies and gentlemen, is history. Both Williams and Holmes loved the idea of K-9, thinking that the robot dog would really appeal to the show's younger viewers, and began to think about retaining him beyond this serial. After several ideas on how to realise the character, which included putting a small actor in a prop, they settled on a radio-controlled prop. Williams was cautious about the feasibility of this and deferred making a final decision on K-9's future until he could see how well the prop would work in practice. In terms of production, Invisible Invader flip-flopped around the production order quite a lot. It was originally intended to be second in the season's running order, but it was to enter production first. Now, as always, there were concerns about the Bristol boys being able to deliver their scripts on time. <laughs> And so it got moved behind Terence Dix's The Vampire Mutation. As we discussed previously, The Vampire Mutation was eventually vetoed by new BBC head of serials Graham MacDonald, and so Dix had to write Horror of Fang Rock in rather a quick turnaround. And so, as such, there was no way that Fang Rock could be completed in time to film first, and so Invisible Invader was moved back to first in production order. As filming approached, the serial went through several name changes, including The Invader Within and The Enemy Within, before finally settling on The Invisible Enemy. Chosen to direct, we have the only contribution of Derek Goodwin, and watching this story, you can probably see why he wasn't invited back. <laughs> oh. Joining him on the core behind-the-scenes team, we have some returning faces. Dudley Simpson provides music. OG designer Barry Newbury returns. He, of course, directed parts of the very first serial of all of Doctor Who. And John Nathan-Turner continues his run as production unit manager. Meanwhile, we also have the only ever contribution to the show of costume designer Raymond Hughes, hmm. who would later go off to America and work on Return to Oz and Space Precinct. So good for him. During filming, changes were required to the K-9 prop unsurprisingly. One element that was nearly overlooked was that the ticker tape that was to be emitted from his mouth was forgotten about. And that was discovered at rather a late stage and his head had to be enlarged to fit the mechanism. The remote control sometimes interfered with the cameras, resulting in visual distortion and the prop itself going haywire. It also couldn't be rolled too quickly without suffering damage and struggled to travel over even small bumps. Tom Baker also disliked the prop, as he often had to stoop down so that they could be in shot together, and so he became easily frustrated with the prop and would occasionally kick it. <laughs> At least it's not a real dog. Yeah. Fortunately, Baker and canine voice actor John Leeson quickly struck up a friendship, which also helped ease the strained relationship between Baker and Louise Jameson. Despite these problems, Williams decided to keep K-9 on the show for the remainder of season 15. And a quick note on Leeson since he's going to be around for a while, he was best known outside of Doctor Who for voicing the character of Bungle on British children's TV show Rainbow. Which probably doesn't mean much to our American audience, but it was really quite iconic for British viewers. As a result of the mandate to rein in the show's budget, the extensive model work, and the construction of K-9, the serial very quickly ran low on budget. One result of this was that there was little money left over to construct the Nucleus costume, which ended up being <laughs> poorly constructed, and pieces of fiberglass would often flake off of it, becoming a breathing hazard, and they would also oh stick to the camera lenses. What an absolute shit show. <laughs> Despite these problems, they got it finished, and the final version of the serial was broadcast on consecutive Saturdays between October 1st on October 22nd, 1977, with broadcast time slot varying between 6.05 and 6.15pm. And with that, that takes us to the end of Behind the Scenes and into our short summary, which is with Riley this episode. Over to you, Riley. Thank you. A nebula has turned a crew of spacemen into a pack of murderous Ed Asners as they try to, quote, 
set temperature and humidity rate for optimum breeding conditions. And yes, it is as disgusting as it sounds. <laughs> this viral crustacean swarm infects the doctor, which requires taking him to the hospital so that he can be made into a baked potato. And what was a base under siege story gets turned into an outbreak story and then into a bee miniaturized story, then into a chase story, where we end with all of the hatching swarm being torched by the ignition of methane gas. So we may not know the origin of the swarm, but we do know the origin of Red Lobster's endless crab legs promotion. <laughs> you know, I've never been to a Red Lobster, and after that, I'm not going to be going to one anytime soon. <laughs> oh, boy. Amazing. Thank you, Riley. So part one? Yeah, part one. So is that a painting at the beginning, the very first shot? And that looks great. And then we have model work. That doesn't look as great. <laughs> The model work in this story is so inconsistent. Some of it looks really yes. good. And some of it, like these opening shots, look terrible. So the space shuttle was awful. Yeah, those sets look so wobbly. But the flying meteors, meteors or asteroids, whatever you want to call them, that part was good. Yeah. I don't understand. It's all over the place. This must be the what Anthony was saying in regards to the budget, like running out of money. So I guess some of the shots were done early when they still had it and the rest not so much. The budget is we have no budget. Agree with that wholeheartedly because I love that the fact that two of the astronaut people are in lazy boy recliners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that, this is also goes to it. That when he takes the ship off autopilot and pilots himself and they had that classic kind of like Star Trek bump, you know, yep. I'm talking about where they get thrown. Notice that two of them go to the left and one goes to the right. <laughs> I'm like, you couldn't have like reshot that just to fix that once everyone's synchronized. I guess there's no time for that. Got to keep going. Yeah. And then in space, I don't necessarily know that I disliked what was going on but what in the world was with the lightning electricity stuff and then like the smoky thing that was going on in space i don't really understand what that was supposed to be representing the invisible enemy is what it's representing <laughs> <laughs> i understand breaking it all down the smoke effect I liked that looked new and it was interesting and kind of gave you like a nebula kind of feel to it like a gassy kind of thing the lightning effect is not great. And I feel like they had to do that because they continue that same lightning effect when we do our little looking into each other's eyes transfer of the parasite. I guess that's the way to establish it with the audience. Like, see, it was the lightning there. And now you see the lightning between people. The lightning is moving between people. That's what it is, I guess. I guess. That's exactly what it is. <sighs> <laughs> and it's good to see that our ornery spacemen at the beginning are pretty grumpy and then when they get infected them they just stay grumpy <laughs> you know it doesn't really change their personality that much no not at all i kind of love how the pilot before he's infected takes the ship off of automatic simply because he's bored and wants something to do yeah <laughs> julie called out that they're in lazy boy recliners and the reason for that is they have nothing to do when you are so bored you're like uh i'm gonna pilot the ship manually even though i don't have to yeah, that's exactly why they have Lazy Boy recliners. <laughs> yes. It's something else. And then the whole what happens to their faces with those eyebrows. Oh, those eyebrows, man. Yeah. The eyebrows and the scales. Mm. Yeah, I don't know about that. I. <laughs> there had to have been something else, but it just trickles down from our final creature design, which we will talk about. We will. That's obviously where it comes from, and... That's where it fails, basically. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> Separately, I kind of really like the scenes when we get to Titan. The model work, actually one of the better pieces is when the spaceship is landing. It looks a lot better than what we'd seen with the initial spaceship shots, even if it does look kind of Thunderbirdsy. <laughs> and then the way that the infected spaceship crew just kind of storm in, they kill the crew that's there, low initially decides, all right, I'm going to get the fuck out of Dodge here. Good for him. By the way, we had seen Michael Shard, who plays him, previously as Lawrence Scarman in Pyramids of Mars. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. And that contrasts with the scenes we're getting in the TARDIS, and we are back to the more traditional console room. I know that makes you happy, Anthony. It does, but is it my imagination, or does it look kind of smaller than before? I yes. believe you're right. Yeah, it looked a lot more cramped. And... 
I don't know. Maybe it's uh, it was a smaller set, but also in the wider shots, the console doesn't look like it's in the center of the room anymore. It looks kind of as if it's almost a bit too close to the walls. It's very, very weirdly done. So I hope that gets fixed in coming stories. But what I do like is I like the Leela is back in her original outfit, mm -hmm. but with the doctor's hat. I actually love that combo. Yeah. It is a good combo. Agreed. Very good combo. And I love their interactions together. And this is where the story does do a good job is, well, I say it does a good job. At the beginning, it does. By the end of it, I am so frustrated at the doctor that I want to smack him across the face. But we'll get there. Yes. Yes, we mm -hmm. will. Fair. It starts good Fair. and then takes a turn for the worse. Mm -hmm. To differ for everyone on this one, I feel like I'm probably going to be coming in a little bit higher on this one than <laughs> the both of you. And everything you say, I agree with, especially in regards to the doctor. But I think what really I enjoy about this serial more than anything else is it really lets Leela shine a lot, I think. And that's what I really like about it. I agree with that. I just the doctor's a dick. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those weird things. It's like he sometimes has that kind of issue. I've noticed that with the fourth doctor. He's just in a pissy mood in some serials. And then the next serial, he's doing his kind of Bugs Bunny routine, jokey kind of, you know, making fun of everyone thing. And it's just, it's a ride. <laughs> and my issue is while the story actually gives Leela quite a lot to do, it's not just the doctor who's kind of dickish towards her. Everyone else. Everyone is. Yeah. yeah. They all basically say she's stupid. Yes. Yeah. And we'll get to that a little bit later. I have a little, I'm going to go ahead and reserve a rant later <laughs> Yeah. about that that I want to point out. But yeah. And while we were talking about costumes, did anyone get any Ambassadors of Death flashbacks as the crew was going into Titan and wiping people out just in their space? Definitely. Definitely. Although right. I don't like those spacesuits as much as I like the Ambassadors <laughs> of Death ones. True. And did you, everyone notice the font? With their names on their suits. Very 70s disco. Yeah. It has oh. Their, oh, wow. And that was hitting on some of the signs, too. I was like, wow, okay. And if you <laughs> noticed on the signs, the signs were all spelled in phonetic English. And yes. the Bristol mm. boys pulled the same trick in the mutants. Uh, oh, God, the mutants. I was going to point that out later. But yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. A couple things. While I know we talked about the weirdness that was the interior of the TARDIS, I really like a lot of the set design. Oh, yeah. Barry Newbury does a good job. It's very good. It looks like they put effort into it. You don't see seams in the walls and everything <laughs> of that nature. So I think the set work is great. Model work is iffy and everything. This serial seems very inconsistent to me. And Julie, there's only one set that I actively think was bad, and that's the interior of the space shuttle. I think that set looks very... Mm. Mm wobbly yeah. like if you blow on the walls they might fall over kind of wobbly but otherwise beyond that yes completely agree all of the other sets look pretty solid well i mean we've established the general look we've established a little bit of our macro views on it i would like to go ahead and jump into the one element of it that i feel does i mean outside of everyone being a dick to leela there's one thing in there that i thought the writing did that was actually not good for leela because it just seems so out of character is how scared she was yeah. At the beginning. That mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense. Like, yes, she has the intuition. She has that instinct. But when that would happen any other time before, it would be like, obviously, she would give warning. But then she would also be like, she ends up being in the end of the serial, which is like, let's blow it up. Let's kill it. Let's attack it. Let's be aggressive. Not like chew nervously on the doctor's scarf. What the hell is that? That seems so out of character. The only explanation I can think of is in a lot of this, it's something that's like, outward and everything i think because the doctor was going to be so affected that's the only thing that would make sense to me is that she's like well the doctor's going to get compromised but right. i'm with you riley it's like hitting this weird line where i'm like i don't know that that's good enough right the thing is i'm thinking about is that from a writing perspective i can understand from the point of view of like okay we want to really give a message to the audience that our villain is going to be like quite the threat quite the badass how can we emphasize that to the audience let's make her scared so it's the question of like is that sacrifice of her character consistency worth it that's the question and it's not just making her scared if you think about it this is something that's able to breach the tardis which we've only seen happen once before, and that mm -hmm. was Sutek in the Pyramids of Mars. And right. so beyond that, the TARDIS, through the show's history up to this point, has been a really safe space. 
Yeah. And so yeah. it's twofold, right? Leah's kind of scared because this thing can breach the TARDIS. And both of those things show the audience that this is not something to be trifled with. But equally, I do have a note about Leela being uncharacteristically hysterical. Yeah. And then the other element of it, I think, is kind of disappointing because I think it's very important, was that we seem to be setting up to have a very strong line in the sand coming off of this revelation that Leela has about not going outside of the TARDIS. And I'm thinking like, oh, this is, she is really, like, she puts her hand on the control, like, we're not doing this. And the doctor's pushing her and we don't get the resolution. I mean, we don't see how they resolved it amongst themselves. We just see them walking out and it's like, well, like, okay, well, are there hard feelings here? You know, how did they, you know, come to an agreement on this? I actually rewound a little bit to make sure I didn't miss something. Yeah. But yes, I agree with that part. Yeah. And she's kind of right because the doctor very quickly gets infected and he's the one who's infected with the nucleus. And what I really like is how he fights back against it and is able mm -hmm. to do that whilst everyone else who is infected with the lesser version of the creature is not able to do that. So that just kind of shows the Doctor's different. He's not human. It re-emphasizes that, which is something I always enjoy because it's very easy to think he looks like us, so he's one of us, but he's very clearly not. So that gets us close to our cliffhanger. It does. So we have a lot of running around with Lo and the infected crew zapping at each other. And we end with... The doctor aiming his laser weapon is <laughs> at Leela. Oh, wait. Lo does get infected. He tries to talk to one of the fallen infected mm -hmm. and gets infected himself. After Leela has killed that person, yeah. so add one to the Leela kill count. And then... <laughs> and I have to say that I really thought the way that when she separated from the doctor after they get out of the TARDIS, and then she seems to be like doing things on her own and kind of killing people and maneuvering around, hiding around the base. I'm like, please, please let this be a Leela does a diehard story. <laughs> that would have been amazing. But no, we ended up going the direction that we do. And then of course, the funny thing about the cliffhanger is Tom Baker I can tell, like, he did get it on his face eventually, but not at the end. At the end of the episode one, you just have the hairy hand, not on his face. Training that gun on Leela, and that's our cliffhanger, yeah. and that takes us into part two. I got really frustrated when I kept hearing Leela being called a reject. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And at the beginning, I wasn't 100% sure what it was about. It wasn't super clear, because... Let's be honest, I don't think some of those astronaut guys were really all that smart. Right. So I really thought it very strange that that's one of the things that they really like highlighted repeatedly in these episodes. And at first I was like, well, it's not going to be that she's a woman, because let's be honest, that would kind of get a little frustrating. Although if they did, cool, I guess. But it was one of those things where... When I start getting more and more into, no, she's not smart enough and all this other stuff, that's where I started just, I, I was done. Okay, and can I go ahead and take my reserved rant space now? Both yes. senators of Watchers of the Fourth Dimension, I declare the floor. Okay, so Professor Marius, right? Professor Marius, when he once again hits on the fact like, oh, it's intelligence. She's not smart enough. That's why it doesn't want her. Okay, can we please... Get clear about what intelligence is compared <laughs> to knowledge. There is a difference. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Leela is intelligent. She is a warrior with a good sense of strategy through her fighting. She can comprehend strategy. She is smart. What she doesn't have is knowledge because she didn't go to fucking medical school like this professor <laughs> did. Okay. That doesn't mean she's not smart. That just means she hasn't received that knowledge. She hasn't retained that knowledge. It's never been given to her. So, like, that's the difference. And God, it's so very frustrating, especially in. It's downright embarrassing when a show is trying to say, like, this character isn't smart because they don't have knowledge. I'm like, it sounds like you're not smart because you don't know what those words mean between knowledge and intelligence. Yeah. I mean, geez. Yeah, it's really frustrating because it goes against almost everything we've been told about Leela before. The whole thing about her is she is smart. She's just uneducated. Right. And, oh boy, that is something I consistently found frustrating here. And... Yeah. I know we'll get there in part four, but she effectively tells the doctor how to resolve the whole damn thing. Uh, and then no. the doctor tries to pass it off as his own idea. I, I will oh, come back yeah. to that. But <laughs> like, literally, she's the one who resolves the story. And so her constant being played down in this is really frustrating. Right. And the fact that the doctor's one of them that does it is even more annoying. That really 
really made me angry. It would be a different thing if everyone else, if Marius was like, oh yeah, she's just a savage, she's stupid. But the doctor was like, well, actually, she's very intelligent. She just doesn't have the education and the knowledge that you do. But instead, the doctor just kind of goes along with it. It felt very much that it was a little bit of Tom Baker himself coming through is what it felt <laughs> like. And I didn't really like that. Well, while we're on criticizing the doctor... <laughs> I would like to point out that in part one, quote the doctor, some of my best friends are humans. Yeah, yeah, I see you, doctor. Okay, I see what you're trying to say there, right? That's not going to get you out of this, okay? <laughs> Can't be specious against humans just because you have some friends. I want to get to some things that I do like because there are, are things that I do like. They get to this base, right? where there's a facility that they can check on the doctor and all this other stuff. I love that base. And I think one of my favorite parts is when the doctor gets wrapped up like a golden burrito. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me laugh. So Chipotle much. doctor. <laughs> and that's funny. That episode, I don't think, I mean, Baker seems like, I think, did he get like the day off or something? Cause he like is mostly out for like the majority of that episode. And he has to physically be there, but he isn't giving any lines. I have no idea. Maybe he just decided he didn't want to act. I mean, this isn't this isn't the sixties anymore where they were filming for ten months of the year and so they all occasionally took a couple of weeks off. Right. You know, these seasons are much shorter. So I, I don't know what was up with that. I haven't seen anything that suggests he went on vacation. I'm just surprised because he was so big on it being all about him that I'm surprised that he went along with, Oh, you're just gonna lay here. That seems surprising to me. Maybe he realized the story was shit and wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> That's fair. Another thing that I did like, though, is when Leela is giving information about the doctor and she's like, he's from Gallifrey. And they're like, oh, Ireland. <laughs> yeah, that made me happy. It was a nice callback before. Yep. I love how that keeps being a thing and will continue to be a thing even into the new series. Yes. It's wonderful. Let's talk about Professor Marius, because at first he's incredibly grumpy and cantankerous. He is not interested in the Doctor until K-9 identifies that he's not human and that the Doctor has a viral infection. Like, no shit, that's why he's here. <laughs> you were literally about to send this guy with this really quite horrific virus back out because you just didn't want to see him. <laughs> I mean, come on. I love Marius. I have a few questions, though, on their wardrobe choices. First off, you've got some of their the nurses, I guess, wearing these weird green, not quite latexy, but like very weird, odd outfits. I'm like, this cannot be comfortable or helpful in any way, shape or form in which to do your job. And then Marius is just walking around in like not even a sport cut. Like what is what's happening here? What's interesting about this is the aesthetics, both in the costume as well as the set design for the foundation all looks very similar to Blake 7. And this was broadcast about four months before the first episode of Blake 7. So I think this was probably just generic BBC future kind of stuff. This is what the designers thought the future would look like. I agree, Julie, some of it is very impractical. But hey, I'm sure if you took someone from 400 years ago and showed them what we dress in now, they would basically be like, what the hell are you people wearing? At least they're getting away from the big shoulder pads That's in the future. That's a big plus. I know the 90s went to big shoulder pads for a little while, but glad we didn't stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's cyclical. They'll be back. I mean, I feel like now we should talk about K-9, right? This is his introduction in this. Yes, it is. I want to say one thing about K-9, because coming from not having seen Classic Who, and I always thought that K-9 and Sarah Jane were like the thing. Same here. <laughs> so I had, throughout all of Sarah Jane's tenure, was waiting for K-9 and we didn't get K-9. So now I have this question of how in the world do K-9 and Sarah Jane get together? We will get there. All in due time. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. But anyway, I love K-9. He's a good boy. Yeah, he, he is. is a good boy. I did like the fact that I think the batteries ran out of the remote control because in part four, they literally have to drag them around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear, like, I could hear, like, the mechanics within him when he moves. Like, oh, they started to get worse as the serial went on. <laughs> I was waiting for him to start smoking at the end. <laughs> I really love the in-story reason as to why we get K-9, being that Marius had a dog on Earth, couldn't take it with him, so made K-9 because he missed his dog. 
Yeah. It's so sweet. Yes, it, it is. is. So while Marius initially comes across as kind of grumpy and cantankerous, he's got this really soft underbelly and becomes softened and likable very, very quickly. And part of that is because he's a dog lover. Love that. And also, I love that Professor Marius is trying to convince them that K9 is only as smart as he is. <laughs> I'm like, no, K9 <laughs> is smarter than you. Sorry. K9 is probably, aside from the doctor, the smartest person in this story. <laughs> Or character. He's not really a person, but yes. So, so good. We're finding out some things and they find the infection virus. Okay, we need to do something. So they just crash a shuttle. Yeah. <laughs> to this foundation, which just, what? And the shuttle crash was really bad looking. <laughs> it yeah. was. But what's interesting about that, or what's ironic, is the sets in the aftermath of the shuttle crash actually look quite good. Yes. It comes back to that total inconsistency in this story. All over the place. I also love the fact that they do that shuttle crash, and then it makes that their own people can't get to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, they're not particularly smart or competent. They really actually could have done with Leela. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm curious about. Again, I mentioned that they're not smart. No, so how right. in the world did they get infected? They should have been rejected. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lowe is doing his best to infect actual smart people who work at the foundation. So, you know, at least Lowe has a good strategic brain. He was the supervisor, so that doesn't surprise me. So we decide that we need to clone oh, God. the two of okay. them so that they can <sighs> get injected into the doctor's brain. Yeah. Uh, mm. Uh, <laughs> see, this all leads into what I was saying in my summary. I feel like we are mashing together different archetypes of stories and smashing all into one and trying to put it all together into this mishmash. And uh, it's new. Okay. To do that is new and interesting. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the effort, but I, I just don't know. Like, it feels like instead of getting a really well done version of a classic story. I'm getting four generic dishes of the same thing I've had before. And I'm like, well, just because you gave this to me after I've had this other thing, it's the same kind of thing I've seen before. So it's not very exciting to me. Well, I think the other thing too, is if you're going to mix so many of these together, you actually do need a six parter in order to do that. To make it breathe? Yes. Please, no. Please, please, please don't extend this to I'm six parts. I'm not saying for this particular one, but if you're going to mix together different types of stories, because we've seen it before where we've had six parters that there's like two episode arcs, mini arcs in them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the only way that you can do it. You cannot do it in a four parter. That's what right. I'm saying. I'm not saying this should have been extended to six parts because no, I agree with you, Anthony. Not this one. But if you're going to mix and mash different types of stories, you can only do that in a six-parter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's just, it has difficulties, <laughs> to say the least. But it's zaniness, it's craziness. And I think particularly Leela just being very action-oriented and really just doing her own thing makes this still pleasant to watch. I mean, <laughs> as long as you can, like, wipe away the other things we've criticized about it. And also, uh, getting back to K9, because I feel like we're about to move into part three since we're about to have the miniaturized injection. And I really like at the end of part two, when one of our shootout scenes, which there are several, but they're very quick. It looks like at one point, because of his height, K9 shoots the guy in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. Just wanted to say that. K9 shoots someone else in the kneecap at one point as well. He's kind of, he's savage. Yeah, he does. So a couple of things at the end of part two. Firstly, Leela on seeing her clone, asking K9 if she really looks like that. Leela's seen herself in a mirror before. Yeah, yeah, good point. Like, come on, that definitely happened in Talons. And also, she is, yeah. she's gorgeous. So she should yep. not be questioning it. She's great. Yeah. Right. And obviously, once we get the shrunk <laughs> versions of in the Doctor Leela clones. Yeah, well, I was going to say we're back to the toilet flush. <laughs> Come on, guys. We had Star Wars four months ago and you right. give us a fucking toilet flush again. <laughs> and also, what the hell are Jameson and Baker doing 
in that it looks like they're dancing <laughs> yes like, it does doesn't like, what is that like i don't understand that direction like i seriously thought like are the characters kind of like goofing off like this is so silly so <laughs> we're dancing as we're going through this syringe into your neck i don't know what is going on <laughs> yeah it's i not don't good. know <laughs> that's yeah. what's going on oh boy oh boy all right so part three and we get the weird. The weird that Julie, you were uh, crying out for in season 14. Yeah, no, this is not the weird I was asking for. <laughs> Give me weird. No, not like that. <laughs> is it that weird, though? Because it's like, I feel like that is like one of the more traditional elements of a science fiction is the whole fantastic voyage. You know, the miniaturized go through a person's body thing. It feels like, I mean, that's that was done in like a movie in the 50s. I think that's when Fantastic Voyage came out. So this is 25 years. It's a quarter of a century later. Not that weird. Maybe when he gets to like the thought area where it's like kind of amorphous. But other than that. Yeah. And when the magic school bus can do a better version of it. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that one out there. Nice. I mean, this is a CSO mess. Yeah. And... We've already had a callback to the mutants. This part has a lot of callbacks and set design to the Claws of Axos. The Claws of Axos was so much better. It looked better. It was. Yeah, it did. But there were definitely parts that looked a lot like that. But yes, mm -hmm. Claws of Axos did it better. And then this is where we're getting into some more of the Doctor being a dick. Mm -hmm. They're in the brain and he's saying a bunch of words about where they're at between the cerebellum and this and that and this side of the brain. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, you are being such an asshole right now. Because yeah. there's no reason for you to go into all of this. He should just say, we need to go this way because this is the way we need to go and just leave it at that. And also, they're on a clock. Yeah. You know, they're on a clock. They need to get this done. They have like, what, 10 minutes? Yeah. Seven yep. minutes? I mean, oy. And just on the doctor being a dick, he even utters lines like, that is why my brain is so much more superior to yours. Mm. Uh... Yes, I get that that's accurate, but there are some things that don't need to be said. Right. Yeah. It's like they wanted to expand on a superiority complex that he already Indeed. has. I mm, No, I got very frustrated with that. But as some of this is going on, because I want to not get more frustrated, because the more I talk about it, the more ranty I'm going to get. You've got oh, do, do it. it. Do, do it. it. Do it. Give in to your hate. We have K-9 and Leela on the outside doing mm -hmm. some things. And K-9 is more useful than half of the companions that we've ever had. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Leela's like, we need to create a barrier. And he's like, well, if you don't get rid of this shaft, then it's going to be pointless. And he, she's like, wow, great, K-9. So useful. And then K-9 made a comment about his memory and awareness. So what is happening right now is we have like three or four different groupings that we're creating, right? We have our what they call intelligence, which is really knowledge. You've got memory and awareness, and then you've got instinct and intuition. So that part I found interesting, except they didn't expand upon it. Right. That yeah, made me yeah, very, yeah, true. And they're a great duo. I oh, hope to have so more of them together. Those were the parts. I mean, I'll admit I was also not very pleased with the scenes inside the doctor's brain. But when we had our cutbacks to Leela and K-9 doing the, their action fighting scenes and you know me i don't really care about those scenes but i just enjoyed their back and forth i enjoyed them working together and being good at it you know it was refreshing it was a nice change up to get through part three yeah i actually think that what's going on outside is a lot more effective than what's going on inside the doctor's body mm -hmm. absolutely and i think that's really shown <laughs> when we finally meet the nucleus uh, let's just go ahead. Let's just get there. I feel sorry for the crew member that had to hunch down inside that black trash bag. <laughs> I mean, and stay hunched like that. That must have been hell on his knees. Shout out to John Scott Martin, who oh, was okay. frequently a monster. So he's known mm. as one of the Dalek operators. That's kind of what he's really known for, because he was almost always one of the Daleks when they showed up. But he did quite a few different monsters and creatures over the show's history. And this is just another one of them. Right. So we have the doctor dealing with the nucleus and the nucleus looks like a very bad version of something out of like the dark crystal or something. Oh, it looks terrible. It's so, it looks terrible. so yeah. bad. Yeah. But Leela's going after the other guy. How in the world does the other guy know how to navigate through the brain? Yeah. I assume because he's connected to the nucleus, he That's can kind the of only way. sense where yeah. the nucleus is. Fine. That's the only way I can explain it. Okay, fine. But it's not good. Oh, no, it is not. 
the one thing that I liked about some of this is when the stuff is happening in the doctor's head, his body occasionally reacts to some of the stuff that's going on in his head. Yeah, like when Leela kicks it yes. inside the head. Oh, I mean, he deserved it. So yes, <laughs> okay with that. But I did appreciate that. There are two things I want to talk about this episode before we move on. One is in this episode, we come back to the second time when the doctor talks about humanity as plague. Oh, right. And the nucleus talks about it. And that's something very much out of C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a human. I take offense to it. <laughs> oh, no, take offense to it. Given that we know that we will eventually in New Who have the doctor talking about how much he always loves humans. Right. Here, it seems out of character. I mean, he hangs out with humanity. He spent so much time on Earth as the third doctor. It doesn't sit quite right with and me. And the number of times he's saved humanity. Yeah. Right. He would commit genocide with the Silurians. He bombed... Well, okay, he, okay, that wasn't him. That was the Brigadier, sorry. That was the Brigadier. That was Brigadier, sorry. <laughs> I got those confused. But no, he's killed plenty of aliens to save humans. I don't know. Yeah. And what is it trying to say? Like, when you think about it, like, it's teaching the doctor that the nucleus is saying, hey, man, this is nature. I have a right to survive. You have a right to survive. So, and I'm a parasite. So, parasite's going to do what a parasite's going to do. And the doctor says, well, by your logic, in that case, I have the right to destroy you and, and kill you as well, because that's just how it is. That's nature. So, it's like, well, then what's yeah. the point of this conversation that we're trying to have here? What are you trying to say, writers? I mean, I understand it, but like, are we trying to teach the doctor a lesson and that there is no morality? It's just survival. Certainly that's the nucleus's argument, but... But the, the doctor's like retort to him is basically confirming the nucleus's point. Yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah. <laughs> we can argue the philosophy and ethics of this probably for hours. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't seem to quite go anywhere. And that I feel like the fundamental problem with this story, it's it feels like it's very half-baked. And that's certainly the case here. It falls upon something that I find very, very embarrassing in writing, and that is when on the page you can tell that the writer believes they are a lot smarter than what they're Mm -hmm. writing actually shows and this in combined with the difference between knowledge and intelligence this kind of like reeks of it in that scene right there but anyway <laughs> the other thing i wanted to talk about and this shows that we are in the post hinchcliffe era is we get a speaking woman in this episode what we had two what <laughs> did we right the nurse the nurse back in part two the entry nurse right, oh yeah. okay i missed her okay oh, yeah. yes oh she wasn't very nice yeah, <laughs> maybe I just blocked her out. <laughs> two speaking women. So we're now two for two in stories in the Williams era in having speaking women. So we're already doing better than the Hinchcliffe era. Can we talk about this really, really terrible cliffhanger? Yeah. So we end with something escaping <laughs> through the tear duct. Marius oh, goes boy. to expand it because he thinks it's the Doctor and Leela and wants to interrogate them on what happened. And it's an enormous prawn. <laughs> my, cliffhanger. My reaction is legitimately... <laughs> Excuse me, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, it's very, very funny. It's truly comical. It's yes. absolutely awful. And I was sitting here and actually watching them have to like actually physically move it around. I'm like, was it originally intended for someone to be able to walk in it? And it was just so poorly done that they then just had to like drag this person around. <laughs> <laughs> and how is this thing meant to convince me that it has any capability of dominating the galaxy? Right. When the doctor calls it a pathetic crustacean, he is on the money. Right. What I would have given for them to like when they move them around to actually cart them around a little radio flyer wagon or like a wheelbarrow. It's like, you know, something like that. That would have been great. And the funniest thing, the funniest thing, I don't know if you guys caught this, in part four, because I think we're there now, oh, yes. in part four, when the crustacean is basically lauding over the doctor who's on the table, and the doctor is speaking to him, they have their little back and forth, and he does the whole, all you megalomaniacs are all the same, blah, blah, blah. Notice that Baker's hand, his left hand, comes up and stays up because he is sick and tired of the damn antennae of the, of the thing hitting him in the face. So if you watch it because it keeps happening and then he just keeps his hand. I'm like, why does the doctor have his hand up? It just stays up the entire time while he's laying down. That's why. It's it's just, it, it sucks. 
boy. It's so funny. I'm I, Again, I was like, I want the weird. And I'm like, this is not what weird is. This is just. No, like, this is like goofy. <laughs> this is goofy AF is what this is. I don't. I can't. It's so bad. And so there's parts of this that could be excellent. <laughs> but none of it is done well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this just feels like a comedy of errors. One thing I did really like here was Leela putting on the nurse's outfit and then mm-hmm. applying makeup to look infected. Yeah. yeah. Like genius. I love her. You're trying to tell us that she's not intelligent right. and then she fools everyone? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then what they end up finding out because the doctor and Mars are, are both looking at the blood is that what they claim is this like aggression aspect of it. And it's really because of that. Like that is the thing that helps them find the cure or whatever. I'm just like, so you're just saying that because she's bloodthirsty, this is what makes her immune. That seems off as well. Thank you. Yeah. It's, Mm. it's, it's really bad. I also want to talk about the nucleus on Titan. Is the enormous prawn horny? (laughs) He seems like it. Yeah. All he wants to do is breed. Yeah, he's like, hurry up, hurry up. I have a question, though. <laughs> Who is he breeding with? Himself? <laughs> I, I don't know. He's, he's just gonna, as the kids say, he's just, he's, he's just gooning, I think, is what they would say. <laughs> the villain of this story is, <laughs> is an enormous prawn who happens to be a sex pest. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> oh, God. It's so bad. Yes. I'm oh, crying. Oh boy. I mean, and that's the other thing. Like, what is the significance? Like, as Anthony is saying, when he's on the ship going back, he's like, I don't care. You know, go as fast as you can. I'm like, what? Like, like, even to like blow up the ship and kill yourself before you get there, that seems pretty stupid, right? Like, what is the just how about how about we go as fast as we can without killing ourselves? How about that? That's a happy medium right there. I mean, oh. yeah, if you're driving home. From a night out with someone that you're taking home with you, you're not going to drive at 150 miles an hour right. just to get them home with you, you know? And also, and make sure if, if you do people out there, if you make sure, make sure they're not a, a shrimp. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah, be certain about them. Wear seatbelts. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we have the shrimp getting back to Titan and laying these disgusting eggs in this weird green Boy. sauce. Mm-hmm. Lovely. That looked like Quatermass too. Do you remember that? Yeah. 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 Oh yes. Oh yes. And this is where we get into the doctor being the biggest dick. Yes. Mm-hmm. He goes on to this, not quite a rant, but he just keeps going on and on about how we can't just blow it up. He deserves to live, just not take over the world and all this other bullshit. And ugh, and then his entire plan is just blow them up. There's that line, shall we try using our intelligence, is what he says to Leela. And she responds with, well, if you think that's a good idea, I mean, fucking hell, Baker and Martin, what are you doing with this script? Yeah. And how did Robert Holmes let that pass through? That is just atrocious. It's so bad. It is so bad. And I just, I can't. Also... I really hate what happens to Lowe in this because Lowe seemed like a nice, competent man. We know that there's now a cure. And instead, he just gets thrown into the breeding tank to be devoured by the swarm. And it's the doctor who throws him in. He could have been cured. And I really hate that end for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially when we spend so much time while they're chasing, you know, running off to Titan. He's seeing back with Marius perfecting this serum. Yeah, it's such a shame. And then we have K9 who is slowly dying because he just, it's just <laughs> running out of batteries. Yeah. Running out of batteries. Is this the episode that, or it could have been either three or four, where there was actually issues with the camera work, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that was this episode. I did notice some like weird lines across the doctor. Yeah. I was like, well, that, okay. And I figured it was probably K9. I wasn't 100% sure at the time, but I was like, okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. But I love that when he runs out of juice, he has a cute little leash. Yeah. <laughs> so Leela can drag him back to the TARDIS. So two things here. Firstly, Leela stabs one of the infected in the neck. That's two. <laughs> yes, that is two. That's pretty badass. And yes, so is. much for reducing the amount of violence in the show. It, yeah. yeah. You can't uh. just up the so-called comedy, which in this story is not at all funny. 
Well, there is comedy, <laughs> it's just it's not intentional. Oh, I mean, there are intended jokes and they're just yes. awful. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then the doctor rigging up explosives to blow up the nucleus. All right, let's go back three seasons. Mm-hmm. It's Genesis of the Daleks. And we have this whole big, do I have the right thing? Mm-hmm. It kind yeah. of established the morality of the fourth doctor. And here he's like, all right, I'm just going to blow these fuckers up. It's like, you couldn't <laughs> do that to the Daleks. Yeah, yeah. And then he <laughs> almost right. just leaves Leela and K-9. And that's clearly Ooh. meant to be funny. And it's yeah, just it not. Doesn't, does not work. I mean, it, yeah. No. No. And then there's the whole Doctor stealing Leela's idea and trying to claim it as his own. Again, clearly the script is trying to be funny and it fails dismally with that. The Doctor just comes across as a dick. Right, right. And then there's the last joke, or so-called joke, where they try to return K-9 to Professor and, of course, the Professor gives them K-9. Yeah. Because, obviously. And the Professor says, I only hope he's TARDIS trained. Right. I mean, just How does he know? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's never heard that term. I don't think they ever say it in front of him. I don't even care. No. I think it's a terrible one-liner that has oh, no yeah. right to even happen. It's like, it's a robot, first off. So, like, what does it matter? Right. Like, that's a it, moot yeah. point. And he doesn't know what the TARDIS is. And you're the one who let him go. I, I, right. Mm. Yeah. It's It fails in three different <laughs> elements. <laughs> And does anyone else really enjoy it? I know we talked about this before, but I just find it very funny that in part four, our two largest effects props, canine and the shrimp, are just slowly falling apart and have to be dragged around (laughs) in the end of the episode. (laughs) I'm about to do something I haven't done in a long time. So regular listeners, please pour yourself a shot. I'm going to quote Sandifer. Oh, 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 wow. We're going back in time now. And in talking about the so-called humor in this, Sandifer says, simply put, the jokes in this episode aren't just written for eight-year-olds. They're written for a terribly cynical idea of what eight-year-olds are like. (gasps) Ooh, well done. And I completely agree with that. Yeah, well said. One thing, we complimented a lot of the set design and one big mistake in it which was in part three not part four so we've moved on from this came from the director there's a scene where k9 shoots the wall and to create a barrier Mm -hmm. and there's a very visible crack in that wall before k9 shoots it and that was originally designed so that the crack was not visible and the scene was shot and had to be reshot and the director didn't give appropriate time to repair the wall that didn't bother me Given that we've complained about seams and walls and what have you, I did just want to give Barry Newbury some props for designing that well and take another opportunity to slam our director for just his general incompetence and thank God he was never invited back. So we're at the end of the story. The TARDIS leaves with K-9 on board. Let's go ahead and rate this. It's my turn to go first and I feel like I've made my displeasure of this story pretty well known. It feels very half-baked. We have talked before at length how almost every time the Bristol boys need significant rewrites and a lot of development to their scripts. From what I can tell from reading about this, that didn't happen with this story. Mm. This was their basic idea. And there are some things that could have been fantastic with this. There really are. It needed more development. It needed a more competent director. And good God, the attempts at jokes needed a lot of work. The treatment of Leela... Not great. The costumes, particularly the giant shrimp, not great. I look at this and I see missed potential resulting in something that I found myself actively despising by the end. So, and I'm going to steal the obvious one for this. I'm giving this three out of ten giant sex shrimps. (laughs) Julie, you're up next. As Anthony mentioned, we've all voiced our displeasure of this. There are pockets of really nice things in this. A lot of the set design is very good, given who I know who did the set design. Makes sense that that's the part that shines. I like a few of the characters, not necessarily everything that they say, but I really did enjoy, especially Professor Marius, and having K-9 being introduced, I love. But I could go for days talking about how the doctor treats Leela. I think this is the worst that any doctor has treated any companion. And while that's not all Tom Baker, that's not all doctor, that's partly how it's written. I can't quite get past it. So I am going to go 
with two and a half golden Dr. Burritos out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Riley, I get the feeling you don't despise this as much as myself and Julie. So uh, end on a positive note. Okay. Yeah, fair. There is a musician under the name Girl Talk who mixes together rap and hip hop with popular pop and rock riffs. So it's really this strange mishmash. And I feel like we kind of have something like that here. The serial reminds me of that because, as I said before, it mixes together four different Doctor Who story archetypes into one. And while a really daring thing to do, the result is ugh. (laughs) But I have to admit, I personally enjoyed watching it. And I would actually watch the story again just because Leela is great in this and proves all the other characters wrong, including the Doctor. The villain design, I think, arguably is the thing that makes this whole thing really fall apart because it is so silly, so terrible, that it is impossible to take it seriously. I think if we had something that looked actually terrifying and menacing, then it would be a little bit easier to deal with. Canine introduction, great, wonderful. And as we've discussed before, the dialogue and the writing is poor, but I'm honestly giving this, the score I'm about to give has a plus one into it just because I love Lee Lillison so much. So I give this five Olive Garden Seafood Alfredos out of 10. (laughs) Nice, nice. All right, one thing I forgot to ask, does this deserve any camp count points? I'm tempted to say yes for the horny shrimp. Yeah, horny shrimp. (laughs) Horny shrimp. Yeah. Maybe a two? Two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, a fair. Two seems reasonable. All right. So (laughs) our aggregate scores give this a story average of (laughs) 3.5. Wow. That's been a while. Which isn't quite the low point of the Tom Baker era, but it's the second lowest rated story we've done so far after Revenge of the Cybermen. So, yikes. Hopefully, next time will be better when we will be discussing the return of Chris Boucher for Image of the Fendal. But in the meantime, as always, dear listener, thank you so very much for listening. And until next time, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Is the Enormous Prawn Horny was recorded on Sunday the 21st of January 2024. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, for God's sake, never record a first draft Bristol Boys script.